Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. are back for another lunchtime movie review reviewing film from our childhood i'm matt i'm chris i'm bill i'm patrick sancho and we're bringing you a another horror film from i was gonna say the 80s but i think it's actually 79 isn't it no it's 1980 1980 it is an 80s 80s film stephen king's the shining but first a word from our sponsor This podcast is brought to you by Bourbon, fueling abusive fathers and psychopaths since 1921. Bourbon. Who's got our summary this week? I do. Chris does. Bring it, Chris. Bring bring the funny. Bring the funny. (laughs) We'll see how much funny's in this one. There's nothing funnier than an axe murderer, Chris. Yeah, you have have your work cut out for you. We give you all the easy ones, like The Thing and The Shining. (laughs) Starman. This is similar to The Thing. The master of verbal diarrhea, Stephen King, teams up with Stanley Kubrick to take us on a long and winding road up the Colorado Rockies, far from Chinatown, where a tormented Jack Torrance, played by a very young Christian Slater, approaches the Overlook (laughs) Hotel for an interview as its winter caretaker. It's a job that will allow him plenty of time to write and maybe drop a few sinister plans to rid the world of Batman forever. During the interview, the hotel manager tells Jack of a previous caretaker who came down with a terrible case of cabin fever and chopped up his family into tiny cubes quicker than an iron chef. He then pulled a Kurt Cobain on himself across the bedroom floor. This doesn't deter Jack, and he takes the job anyway. But back home, his son Danny is afraid to go with him. Danny has learned from his mystical finger, Tony, played by the thing from the Adams family, that there's something sinister at the hotel. Danny freaks out, and when his mother, Wendy, played by Popeye's Olive Oil, can't calm him down with the stirring rendition of the song, He's Large, she calls a doctor for help. The doctor's not terribly concerned when she learns that Jack has given up alcohol after a night of drinking and caused him to dislocate Danny's arm. Instead, she recommends to Anison and to call her in the morning. Female doctor, what do you expect? Yep. Our happy family instead sets off to the, the hotel, arriving just as it's shutting down for the season. During a tour of the facility, Danny meets the chef from South Park's father, Chef Senior. He, too, has Danny's gift for seeing dead people, which he calls The Shining, and telepathically offers the boy some ice cream that he keeps on a warm bed in the back of his van. Instead, Danny asks the chef why room 237 is so scary. Chef dodges the question and tells him that the hotel has a shine to it as well and to leave room 237 alone. After a month of caretaking, Jack's writing has hit a wall. And no amount of staring into mirrors will help him with that block. Danny and his mother are sick of eating spinach and decide to run through the hotel's hedge maze to pass the time. But this only occupies them for so long. 
As time progresses, Wendy becomes more and more concerned about contact with the outside world when the phone lines go down, and Danny becomes more and more scared of the hotel as his premonitions become even more frightening. This fear seems to correspond with Jack's increasingly erratic and violent behavior. One day, on a big-wheel tour of the hotel, Danny's surprised to see the door to room 237 open. Ignoring Chef's advice, he goes inside. What exactly happens in there, we shall never know, but he later stumbles into the lobby where his dad and mother are lovingly chatting away, and he is bruised and beaten. Wendy blames Jack of abusing her, her dear sweet pea, causing Jack to storm off to the gold room. There he meets a more human-than-human ghost named Lloyd, who patiently listens to Jack bitch about his wife. Wendy interrupts Jack to tell him that Danny told her that a naked woman in the bathtub injured him. Obviously, the kid came across at her special time, complete with candles and a pouring faucet. Hearing this, Jack goes to explore room 237 and meets the Lady of the Lake, but he tells Wendy nothing happened. Now, Wendy wants to take Danny from the hotel where he will be safe, but Jack says she is just trying to make him look bad to his bosses. He storms off to the gold room again, where it is now filled with partying ghosts. He runs into an old friend named Grady, who was a killer caretaker back in the day. He tells Jack to get his shit together and correct his wife and child. Jack says this is something he can do. We cut to a place somewhere in the middle of Florida to find Chef resting on his bed, admiring his collection of velvet paintings that hang from its walls. Nude black mamas leer out from them and give Chef their fuck me eyes. Something is going to be shining for sure, but before anything can happen, the happy scene is interrupted by a premonition from that little white prick back in Colorado, and Chef hops the next flight back to investigate. At the hotel, Danny is now referring to himself as Tony and will only speak the words red rum over and over. Wendy comes across Jack's typewriter when she is out looking for him and reads what he has been writing all this time. It's 200 pages of the same sentence. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Jack finds her reading his love note to the ghost in his head and becomes cross with Wendy. So she hits him in the head with a bat and drags him to the kitchen and then locks him in the pantry. Jack awakens and when he realizes that he is trapped in the pantry, he tells Wendy that she is just as trapped in the hotel as he because he has destroyed the two-way radio and the snowcat. Wendy runs off with a knife in her hand to see if Jack is telling the truth. Jack should have also told her that running with knives is not very safe and sets a bad example for the boy. While Wendy is out, Jack chats it up with Grady one last time and then somehow manages to escape the pantry. Danny is busy playing dress-up in the bedroom and finds his mother's red lipstick. He takes it and writes red rum on the door, and Wendy freaks out when she sees its reflection in the mirror and notices it reads murder. Jack catches up to Wendy and Danny in the room, and with an axe in his hand, he chops through door after door until his wife and son are trapped in the, in the bathroom. Danny escapes out the window, but Wendy is too fat to fit through. Bonbons in the 1970s were a terrible thing. Jack makes a hole in the bathroom door large enough for him to stick his face through it, but Wendy cuts him before he can unlock the door and Jack flees. Finally, Chef arrives to save the day in a new snowcat that he borrowed. As he walks around looking for the family, he forgets he has the shine and doesn't bother to contact Danny telepathically. Or does he? Before that is revealed, Jack finds him and gives him a nice chop to the torso with the axe. Chef and his shine fall to the ground dead. This distraction gives Danny a chance to run outside to a snowy maze and gives Wendy a chance to meet the honey badger going down on a ghost in the bedroom. 
He let her watch, too. The honey badger don't care. He don't give a shit. <laughs> Jack chases Danny following his son's freshly cast footprints, but Danny is a smart one and covers up his tracks. When Jack gets confused from this, Danny runs out of the maze where he and his mother drive off in Chef's snowcat to safety. Jack freezes to death out in the maze, and the movie ends with the song Midnight, the Stars and You softly playing. The camera zooms in on a photo from a 4th of July party in 1921 with Jack smiling in the middle of it all. Was that as long as the movie was? Wow, that you hit, I think, every scene that I can remember, and somehow the movie was able to do that in like two hours and 30 minutes. I just went crazy listening to that shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good You're job, fixated Brett. on the honey badger. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty hot. He clearly didn't give a shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> his, his ass was hanging out, too, when he was going down. So 1980, when, when in 1980 did this come out? Uh, this was released on May 23rd of 1980. It was the same day as the uh, Opus, the Gong Show movie. Two days after the Empire. Wait, wait, wait! Sorry, the Gong Show movie. You don't remember the Gong Show movie? Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't remember they even made that. Yeah, they made the Gong Show movie. Uh, two days after the Empire Strikes Back, and around the same time as Fame, The Long Riders, Breaker Morant, and Friday the Thirteenth. So, but this was May twenty third. This is a summer movie. This is leading up to Memorial Day weekend. It grossed uh, just over forty four million dollars. It was the fourteenth highest grossing film of the year, right behind Ordinary People, Popeye, and Urban Cowboy, and right in front of Seems Like Old Times, Cheech and Chong's next movie, and Caddyshack. And just for shits and giggles, it was the seventh highest grossing film um, based on a Stephen King book. And I, I would, I'll put ten dollars out there if anyone can name the six movies in front of it. Stand by me. Nope. Oh, sorry, it was Carrie. number five. Number five, stand by me. Carrie's. Nope. Cujo. Nope. Pet Cemetery. Number four. Green Mile. Number one. Heavy uh, Metal Shaw- Ass <laughs> Shawshank Redemption. Nope. Wait, Shawshank Redemption didn't beat this? Did not beat this as far as gross. Holy cow. Come on. Misery. Number three. You got number two yeah. and number six. Throw Mama from the Train. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, jeez. Yeah, the two hardest ones are the last ones. All right, give us the other two. Number two. Oh, I know. What is it? What you... No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> number two, 1408. With, uh, oh, oh, that's the John Cusack one? Yeah. And number six, The Secret Window with Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. I would never have gotten number six. I forget that was even based on I Stephen King. I don't even remember that as a, yeah, as a Stephen King. Wow. I think, that, I think the honey badger was working The Secret Window. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, so Popeye and The Shining comes out in the same year. This is a stellar year for uh, one Shelley Duvall. Yeah, Gollum had a big year that year. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> she, all through this movie, I'm looking at her, her ears are sticking out, her teeth are all fangish, and I'm going, that's Gollum. She just needs to say, my precious, my precious. But yeah, after Popeye and this film, she really doesn't do a whole lot. But yeah. Hollywood finally wised up. Well, there's only so many Robert Altman films that you can be in. Basically, her her main backer. I mean, if you look at her career, she she's always in Robert Altman films, and then she has supporting roles in a lot of other films, with the exception of this one. You know, she never she never is really the lead, other than this. And she and her and Stanley Kubrick hated each other throughout this whole production, and her part was supposedly reduced because he couldn't stand her. 
Uh, she she annoyed me. I'll, I'll admit. Yeah, I get her as as olive oil, but she annoyed me throughout this film. Well, that was the point, wasn't it? She's supposed to be an annoying character. Well, we were talking about this film to, to some. To are you going to share with guys. us, Matt, or are you just going to drink by yourself? <laughs> I've got some bourbon. Yeah, you might want to. You might want to mute that next time you take a drink of the ice. Your money's no good here, Mister Torrance. <laughs> and we're back. We were. We were. I was talking to Jason about this film. And he thought Shelley Duvall was a great pick because she comes off as uh, very vulnerable and and basically somebody who would be uh, an abusive in a, in a domestic violence type situation or an abusive uh, relationship, and that that's how that that's why she was a good pick. I don't buy it. I just found her uh, annoying throughout. The- All right. Well, let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. So Jack Nicholson is supposed to be married to her. They're in an abusive relationship. Did you find them believable as a couple? Yeah, yeah, I did. There you go. There you go. Here's why it's worked, because I, I feel a little uh, hate boiling up here with you guys are a little anti-shining. So I'm going to strike first. I'm going to draw first blood, Stallone style. <laughs> Here's the deal with these two. Okay, so their their chemistry works. She's highly unlikable. And this starts to kind of lay into the whole idea of spousal problems and the horror of what can happen in a relationship add isolationism and the guys are already a little bit goofy to begin with so we get part of what makes this movie work is because we don't like her character and we can kind of relate to him not liking her and then when he goes off he goes off the deep end where initially we could kind of relate to him and then at the end you can't relate at all well she struck first too by the way exactly wait what do you mean by that she hit him first with a bat. She was the first to inflict violence in this movie. Right. Well, and she does, and then she comes back with the knife later and cuts mm-hmm. him. Yeah. But she, her her scene with the doctor, I did think was very effective, and mm-hmm. she explaining how it was an accident and talking about the you know where he separated the the Danny's shoulder. She was a woman in denial. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she did play that that part pretty well. I just really hate Chevy, Shelley Duvall. Completely, just in even as olive oil, I remember hating that bitch. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, so, I agree. I agree. I don't think she's a very likable character, and I think that does play into what what they're going for here. I think she's well cast in that respect because you you expect that she's going to get it throughout the whole movie. You know that he's going to go crazy. You know that he's going to go on a killing rampage, and you're almost rooting, rooting for it to happen. And she is very submissive throughout the whole thing. So from that, that perspective, you know, it does – I guess it works for what he's doing. But what I – we're going to be talking throughout this film or, or throughout this review about uh, – we're going to be juxtaposing the, the king's uh, perspective and what, what kind of his vision for this story was versus Stanley Kubrick's film. So those of you who, who don't know other already, this is a Stanley Kubrick film, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And one of the things that I read was that Stephen King hated Shelley Duvall – as as Mrs. Torrance, because he viewed the, the Mrs. Cor- Torrance character more as a almost a debutante, somebody who never really had to work for everything, anything, somebody who who kind of led a charmed life up to this point, and that was Stephen King's view of why she would be sucked in and, and vulnerable because she really had no life experience and never had to suffer or or, or work very hard, and so she was kind of this this um, oh like like I said like a debutante, a blonde bombshell type, which uh, I thought was kind of very interesting uh, to, to set off 
how diametrically opposed these two uh, these two guys are. So you're saying she's not hot? <laughs> well, uh, she, parts she, of her may, might be. I don't. I don't know. I, I didn't see her her brown eye or anything. Yeah, she, she, I think she did come off as being a sheltered person. I think everything you just described, other than the blonde debutante, is what she portrayed in this movie. Well, but it, it the character in the book is so dramatically different, and I guess we could get it out here in the open. I don't believe any of us have read the book. All we've done is read about the book in, pre- in preparation is because we watch movies. We don't read fucking books. But yeah. uh, To be honest with you, I think the book is irrelevant to this movie. No, they're um, two different things. I would agree with you. So, But the, the character in the book is described as very self-reliant, very independent, never displays the hysteria that that Shelley Duvall does and she never collapses on the floor or, or never, she never, you know, s- screams and runs around in a panic like Shelley Duvall does in this film. She's more, she's, she's more just aggressive and getting, you know, I, this is what I need to do. Protect my son. Right. Well, uh, before we get into kind of Kubrick in the film, I want to talk about Jack Nicholson and, uh, and kind of he, how he was cast as, as Jack in this, in this film that everyone, Think he was a good choice? Did everyone kind of like him, or, or what was your take on on Jack Nicholson? I think for his audition, he had to uh, audition as some of Christian Slater's parts in some of the movies, <laughs> he and did. he was the one who did it best. He, he did pump up the volume in Heather's in his readings. Yeah, I, I mean, you can't really argue with that kind of skill. Right. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I read something interesting that that there were some other choices. Uh, very famous choices for uh, the character of Jack Torrance, Bobby De Niro. I, I like to say that like I know the guy. You know, I like when people pull that out, right? Like Bobby, like my buddy Bobby. Oh, Bob, I, Bob, Bob yeah. would have been good, 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 good role, right? Um, and the other one was Robin Williams, and I thought hey. both of those were yeah, kind of interesting. He chose hey, well, Popeye over this, <laughs> right? Well, they had seen him, yeah, with with Shelley Duvall, and they're like, let's just continue this these this. Uh, Power amazing, couple. No, the amazing <laughs> chemistry that they displayed, and they wanted that chemistry to carry over to. But what would have been actually? Can you imagine the crazy, coked-up Robin Williams stream of consciousness as the crazy Jack Torrance character going around? Oh, hello! Oh, what am I going to do now? Hello, maybe I'll kill you. That could have really changed the entire feel of the movie in that last scene where he goes crazy and tries to kill her. That would have been really interesting to see. Well, it's interesting you say that because that's exactly. Uh, was was supposedly the analysis is that Robert De Niro was viewed as after uh, supposedly Stanley Kubrick and seeing Taxi Driver thought no 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 that guy's too sane uh, <laughs> true story and in watching Mork and Mindy and Robin Williams he said no 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 that guy's too crazy <laughs> so uh, that that's what the at least the reading I did uh, was Stanley Kubrick that was his uh, analysis so Jack was the just right porridge right? he was. <laughs> He was the just right for it, which I think is weird because I don't – he comes off to me right away as as pretty off and, and, and crazy, whereas supposedly Kubrick wanted uh, this this shift, kind of this guy's totally normal and everything, and then he wanted kind of this – him devolving into madness, and I don't really catch that. That would have with, been a nice transition Jack. if they would have included it in this movie. I agree with you, and, and, and he was kind of crazy from the – from the get-go. Well, it, yeah, it, but that's if you assume that he you – know, there's kind of two pathways you can take with this. Either he is a regular dude who gets – who goes nuts, gets seduced or possessed by these demons at the uh, Overlook, 
and then is absorbed into them at the end when he's pictured actually in the pictures or is he reincarnated over and over and actually is the caretaker as Grady tells him well the the way I read that uh, he's always been the caretaker is the caretaker's a murderer and Grady's saying you've always had this murderer in you you've always been the caretaker and uh, so when he's gone to the to the hotel for this interview he already has his issues and he's already contemplating murder and he already hates his family and um Grady, who is his subconscious speaking to him, has said, look, you've always had this in you. So it's not a stretch. I mean, the thing is, he, they're really there for about a month and a half before he really goes mm-hmm. whacked. Yeah. So I, I think it was pretty believable if you kind of follow the timeline of how long they've been here. He's weird to begin with, and he's, he's unstable and he's abusive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just add the bourbon and, you know, there you have it. Well, I'm going to the hotel talking to him. I'm going to throw the first metaphor in this movie in our review. Bring it. Uh, when he's driving on that long, twisting road, you know, it's just him and something's following him that you can't see. That's uh, the first metaphor for there's just something not right with this guy. That uh, he's, his, his life is on a long, twisting road being chased by something. And the camera chases him on this road physically. Well, well, that kind of brings us to some of the imagery and symbolism and, and metaphor and all these things you're talking about that uh, Stanley Kubrick is is known for, uh, deservedly or no. And, and and some of the things you talk about is this this idea of of maze, you know, being lost in a maze, being lost in a labyrinth, uh, and it starts from the the windy road. To the to the hotel as a labyrinth, to the literal maze as a as a maze, and and so corn on. is maze. Well, there are actually m i m a i z e is that? Yeah, you call it corn, we call it maze. And it was ancient Indian burial ground, so it all comes around. There's a connection right there. Uh, well, the other thing too is what about the, the Kubrick uses a lot of space. There's a lot of emptiness, and he shows just how small characters or we are in general. And, and the floors are all highly buffed out, and the, the sound, they really capitalize on the, you know, the, the echoing and everything like that. So, yeah, how he is just kind of like this little rat in a trap. All of them are. Well, it's yeah, also- like you said, space and reflection and mirrors and all those things are all kind of inter, interconnected in this film with uh, kind of showing just that depth and – and, and so I, I agree with you, the size and the space uh, of, of the world versus uh, the insignificant uh, people and how vulnerable they are in this, in this space. Well, I've, I've, I found it interesting during my research talking about the, the set. Um, I always thought they filmed this at an actual hotel because it was, just, it was so elaborate, so large. It was hard for me to imagine that they'd built these huge sets. And because I agree with Chris is that you, you, you know, um, sorry, I agree with Sancho that this use of space it shows this kind of this isolation, this small individual in this large, you know, hallway or this large room, or literally in the large maze. If they show that that pullback of the map of the, the of the maze, and you see Danny and the Shelley Duvall character in the middle of it, as Jack Nicholson is looking over the top of it, you know, kind of the transition there. It's just that this, they're how isolated they are, and how liter- literally the Jack Nicholson character is feeling isolated himself that drives him down this road of madness. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's not just uh, mazes. It's also breadcrumbs. There's a lot of re- references to in these um, mazes, uh, an idea that you can be chased and you're being followed. 
like when uh, they're taking the tour of the kitchen, Wendy says, you know, uh, this, is, this is so cavernous, you need a trail of breadcrumbs to find your way out. And then you've got uh, the kid on the big wheel going through the halls. He's going over the, the wood floors and the carpet, the wood floors and the carpet, which is kind of a, uh, using sound for breadcrumbs, like the camera's chasing him. And then when it's the snowy maze at the end, um, Jack is following his breadcrumb of footprints right after him. So it's, it's not just the maze. It's also uh, the trail you leave behind in the maze. Can, should we talk about Kubrick for a little bit and just kind of his, I guess, the legend that is Kubrick? Are, are you guys, are you guys uh, fans of, of most of his films? This is his first one I've seen. I really like Dr. Strangelove. And I really liked A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I was not a big... Oh, and, and Full Metal Jacket. I was not a big fan of Eyes Wide Shut. And I was not a big fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And, yeah, or the older think, ones. I'm trying to think what else you've, you've missed. Those are kind of his famous... Lolita? Lolita. Yeah, I never saw Lolita. Clockwork Orange? Yeah. Uh, I've, I, Clockwork Orange, I, I love. Oh, I God. really love Malcolm McDowell in that. I think he's... Yeah. Absolutely. He's a great singer in that one. Yeah, he, but he's absolutely brilliant in that. I love that, but but I really haven't seen, or other than Full Metal Jacket, I really none of his other works interested me. So I didn't. I, I'm not a big fan. Um, I think he's a little uh, a little overrated, I guess. You never seen Spartacus? Yeah. Uh, did he do Spartacus? Sure, I saw. Yeah. yeah. On Stars, that's pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> A lot Ross of nudity Marcus. in that, oh, right? My bad. Wrong. Yeah, no, not the homoerotic <laughs> Yeah, no, I get that because uh, it's just an excuse to watch uh, porn, basically. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, yeah, so what about you, Patrick? He's hit or miss with me. I, I generally do like Full Metal Jacket. I do think the first half is better than the second half. Um, I, 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 lo- I love Dr. Strangelove. Spartacus was pretty good. Uh, 2001 is a little bit... I want to say too, a little bit too cerebral. It didn't move fast enough for me. I've never enjoyed watching that. What the, when I saw this one was The Shining when I was a kid. I did not enjoy this one, and I didn't like Eyes Wide Shut. So he's he's hit or miss. I absolutely hate Clockwork Orange. I've never liked that film. I don't I don't understand the appeal of that film to anyone. So that's his best film. That a lot of people that's, do think it's his best film, and I just it does not resonate with me for some reason. Well, what I liked about yeah. A Clockwork Orange, and I realize this is a bit of an aside, but I, I really liked, and, and it kind of plays, I guess, into this review somewhat, but the use of music in A Clockwork Orange and the sounds compared or juxtaposed with the, the visual imagery where you've got this classical music combined with the killing. And I did, I really liked the way that Kubrick did that in A Clockwork Orange and kind of to try and tie it back to The Shining. One of the things that really struck me as I watched The Shining uh, I was watching it with headphones because it was late at night. I didn't want the TV real loud and to wake people up. And when I had it blaring in these headphones, there's all this music, even at parts where you wouldn't expect there to be this really scary music or this uh, the scene itself didn't necessarily lend itself to a very scary moment. But the music was so intense that I, I had to, at times, turn the volume down because I was getting freaked out and getting chills, not because of what I was watching, but because of what I was hearing. And I, that element of the, of the movie, to me, really struck me, really hit home. It's real horror show. Yeah. Yeah, to me, this was the closest thing to Halloween. Uh, I think Halloween has that same... Th- that provides the effect. If you do... 
uh, and, and this does too. There's there's a great YouTube clip that we'll we'll try to post where it does a trailer of The Shining with real happy. Sancho, you sent it to me. I think the the, yeah. the real happy uh, feel good movie of the summer. Feel good movie of the summer. And it's, they edited it. Yeah, and it and and you just it it really plays differently when the music and and that's For how sure. Halloween is. So yeah, I agree with you. Bill, what you were saying is is a really good point because uh, I, I have this tendency with my family that like I'm really big on dialogue. So when I watch a movie, I you know have to employ the full surround and the whole thing, and I can't miss a second of it. I, and it's, this is one of those movies where, in order to be seduced by the whole thing, you have to hear it appropriately. I think Kubrick made movies that have to be seen on the big screen or with a superior sound system. But yeah, when you incorporate everything, you get the music, the sound, you know, all the intensified sound effects, you really get sucked into it. There's a there's a, a guy who's got a post on there that we'll put up as well, but part of it is that he counts like 38 times in the beginning of the movie where evidently, and I'm not sure if this is valid or not, where Kubrick's voice is overdubbed and he says the phrase shown, which is what past tense of shine and they throw it into all of these specific parts if my and, fourth grade uh, english holds up i think you're right okay good <laughs> and uh, and so anyway it's just a really if it is a really interesting use of sound and and i think that's what makes this movie well and what was amazing to me as i'm watching it is the the music would come on and i would expect there to be a scene commensurate with the music that there would be something visually striking or visually intense to match the intensity of the music and oftentimes there wasn't and at times it was almost like i was getting the emotional uh, frightened reaction just based on the sound even though there was nothing visually that would stimulate me in that same way or that would make me feel that same terror yeah, and I'm sitting here nodding because I mean, I, all I can do is say that's, I mean that that's a great description of it. But Patrick, you were kind of talking uh, about what you observed in watching this film, kind of along those same lines. About the music? No, not about the music, but about the kind of the build up and the and the suspense um, well, that I think is tied into that. Well, it's it's not your with anything with Stanley Kubrick. He doesn't make anything a typical war movie or a typical. You know, horror film. It, 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 it's I consider this more suspense than horror. It's you know, yep. it's because it's based off a Stephen King novel. It, you know, everyone has this it, belief that it's going to be supernatural, and you know, it's, and it's, I'm sure Chris is going to agree with me that that this film is not supernatural. This is just a descent into madness of one individual and how it affects his family around him, and that they can build this suspense up. In this case, I think a little too long because it's two and a half hours, but to pay it off in the end um, with finally Jack Nicholson finally snapping and coming out to, to kill his family, that it, it, it's very much like Halloween in that regard, that I don't think of Halloween as your typical horror film or slasher film. It was, it was a suspense film that didn't, you know, didn't live on gore or blood. This one has a little bit more than Halloween did, but it's all built on suspense. And, and that's why I think partially the Stephen King or Stephen King did not appreciate this adaptation is that it took away from the supernatural element, which he is known for and humanizes it. In fact, I know that's what he thinks. Well, and you, but you were also talking about how the buildup and you were kind of anticipating something and then it wouldn't really pay off, but oh. then it would come later. Well, and that has something to, also to do with the fact that I've seen this before that I had seen the scene, especially when Danny's riding around on his big wheel and he's going through the hotel and they're following him the, with the steady cam. 
I know that at some point he's going to turn the corner and he's going to see the twins. And I think they actually do that sequence two times before. And I have not seen this film in years. And I'm like, okay, now he's going to turn. It's going to round this corner, this corner. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm literally on the edge of my seat waiting for something I already know is going to happen. But it's been so mm-hmm. long that it, it probably built more suspense in me now than it probably did the first time. Because the first time I just see him riding big wheel, this time now I'm waiting for the, the twins to come. Well, they pretty right. much show you everything that's going to happen in these uh, um, little premonitions. And yeah. then that's part of the suspense buildup is you're like, okay, when is it going to happen? This looks like it could. When will it happen? And it's to keep you kind of off guard and on your toes. It, it creates a sense of unease while you're watching this movie. Well, the, yeah, that's a good point. And the, the thing is, too, we talked about uh, some of the movies that had come out around this time, uh, Friday the 13th. We, and we've kind of bitched about this before on the podcast, but the, the use of very close angles and you see only the face and everything else is fuzzy, then, bam, they got a hatchet in the face or, you know, arrow in the testicles, whatever it is. So, but Kubrick, especially in this movie, used a lot of wide angles. And so you have the, he builds suspense when you can see everything in the frame. So, so Danny's in his little car and he's looking down the hall. Remember when he's uh, stacking up the cars on that kind of crazy pattern um, rug? And you see all the way down the, the hall. So you, you're thinking something's going to jump out and you get a look at it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then when Nicholson comes out and he uh, hits Dick Halloran with the hatchet, you see the long hallway, you know something's going to happen. And you're still surprised when it comes out. Well, and even the scene where he's the Shelley Duvall is trapped in the bathroom and Danny's gotten outside, and that that axe scene where it's coming through, they show the entire swing of the axe mm-hmm. into the you know into the bathroom. Where if that would have, if if it's kind of traditional filmmaking, you're going to have her safe and that she's gotten away, and then you're going to have this big dramatic you know, startling moment with the ax coming through and he doesn't do that. He shows you everything that's going on. And to a degree there's, I, I guess there's more suspense and more uh, kind of horror uh, associated with that view of it rather than kind of a cheap thrill of, uh, of startling people. Well, and also she, in the scene where, where the hatchet's coming through the door and she's standing there screaming with the knife in her hands, it, it, you can almost, it almost looks like she's being murdered minus the blood. Right, visually, the axe is like going through, basically into her or through her yeah. in that in that scene. Right. Correct. Yeah. Just 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 an aside. Scatman. What's his name? Scatman Crothers. That's a great name. Scatman Crothers. That should be the name of a band. Um, I don't. I would change my name to that. However, more recently, Scat is is known as Fecal Matter. So I just don't. <laughs> I would call myself the shit <laughs> Scat because it doesn't have street cred. Could we call you the scat? <laughs> you could call me scat. Uh, Scatman Crothers, well-known fact, also the voice of one Hong Kong Fui. Yeah, and he was also the voice of jazz in the original Transformers. <laughs> one thing that kind of bummed me out, even as a kid, I think I saw this first time when I was like 12. You got this ESP or the shine or whatever he calls it. Don't you think you'd be heads up to an axe coming into your chest? <laughs> yeah, a little better than he was, certainly. Well, you know, once again, it's interesting the difference between the book and the film. In the book, he survives. In fact, the Jack character kills no one in in the book. Dick gets away with Danny and I can't can't remember Shelley Duvall's character's name because she annoyed the shit. Wendy. 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 Uh, Winifred gets away with Wendy and Danny, and the only person who dies is the Jack character. He dies as the the hotel explodes. 
it's 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 a drastic difference. I don't know why they had to kill him, other than you got to kill someone to show that Jack Nicholson is not a redeemable character at that point in time, and capable of actually killing people. Yeah. My, my take on it, and this is of course going to be reading into what is probably not there, but uh, I think Jack's character had the shine as well, and that he somehow blocked Danny from communicating with um, with Chef and was able to kill him. Well, he Interesting does. you should say that. Sorry to monopolize on this uh, Shining, but uh, the part of some of the analysis that is done on this film is specifically about communication. And so the thing I was talking about, those overdubs of voices and stuff, a lot of those times they will be present when they talk about communication or when they're actually u- using either the two-way radio or the telephone. Mm-hmm. So, But, but yeah, we, we, we do forget. We know Danny has it, and we know that Dick Halloran has it, but the fact of the matter is they talk about it, yeah. that it is passed on genetically when they're having right. the ice cream together. And it does make sense that Jack would have it, uh, because especially early on in the film, they're, the two that are most affected by the hotel is Danny and Jack. And two other point out two other things to point out about that is um, in the scene with the two little girls when uh, they meet uh, Danny, they say "Come play with us forever and ever," and then cut to the scene where Danny's talking to his dad and ask him if he likes a hotel, and uh, Jack says, "I want to stay here forever and ever." So mm-hmm. that's one uh, point of The Shining. Then the other one is when he's uh, talking to himself in the bathroom and uh, he's imagining Grady in front of him. He is talking about the the black chef who's trying to communicate with Danny. Well, if the ghost is real... I think he refers to him as an N-word. He does, (laughs) but uh, we're not going to make this racial. Um, But um, if the ghost is real, then the ghost is telling Jack that this man's communicating. If the ghost is not real, which I believe all the ghosts are made up in this movie, that means that Jack has the shine and he knows that this man is communicating with Danny. Well, you say you don't want to, you know, about making it racial. There was one another thing that I I read about the supposedly uh, some of the symbolism here with the Native American motifs and the chef being, uh, you know, the the minority here and the one that ultimately gets killed. That this is a symbolism, as Kubrick's known for, with the the social commentary of the founding fathers and the white man constantly put destroying the minority and specifically the native american you see jack who's throwing the 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 ball the tennis ball becomes a a metaphor for the axe and he's constantly throwing the ball at the sand painting of you know the native american sand painting and then he eventually throws the ball uh, on the ground or in the area right where he ends up hatcheting dick halloran and so there is uh, at least some people point out that that was Kubrick's uh, attempt at social commentary at this time. I, I don't know that I buy that completely, but it's it's at least interesting to think about. Well, and I think you look at Kubrick's films, and I think there's a lot of subtle things like that that he weaves into them that, that aren't necessarily plot points or that don't necessarily fit in the overall motif of the film, but that are still statements or that are still – uh, these little, for lack of a better term, Easter eggs that he almost puts within the filmmaking process. And you see that in a lot of his other films, too. So it wouldn't surprise me that he would throw in something that might not be crucial or a, a big part of the overall plot, but that still had some significance to the filmmaking process. What about the straight bears that are upset with bears doing fellatio in this film? <laughs> There's a commentary there. There is a, <laughs> there is a commentary on the furry 
scene with the dog, the dressed up dog. Giving, Gay bear, assless chaps. Assless chaps giving oral to the uh, bald ghost. The, the 1920s bald ghost. Not only was it Baron Man fellatio, but it was 1920s Baron Man fellatio at a time when Baron Man fellatio was not nearly as accepted as totally, it is today. Totally frowned on, man. <laughs> but that's thank oh, God but, for the 60s. It made that acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, but Bill, it did. Come, it did kind of branch out at that time with you know prohibition. People were looking for a different kind of thrill. <laughs> It's true. I'm glad I think a lot of people something to go down their throats. Yeah, they looked to some <laughs> other form of excitement, and it just so happened in this instance that the guy turned to to dressed up bear on man. Yeah, our conversation on this film went a little long this week, so we decided to divide it up into two parts. This is the end of part one of The Shining. Check back in a couple days for a continuation of our discussion of The Shining. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter under Lunchtime Movie. By following either of those, you can keep updated about new podcasts, as well as video extras and news about upcoming films. Finally, if you're a fan of the show, help us keep it going by visiting either Amazon.com or Audible.com through our website. Anytime you click on one of those links and make a purchase, a portion of your purchase goes to support the upkeep of our podcast. Keep listening. We're getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only the theme music for lunchtime movie review fireworks is provided courtesy of alexander nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license all original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the mhn podcast network lunchtime movie review and fuzzy bunny slippers entertainment llc unless otherwise noted